Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nerva Reddy. This is Stephen Robles and we have a very special interview episode today. Seth and Nerva actually got to talk to a medical doctor who has some incredible insights on the coronavirus and has actually dealt with patients that are suffering from the coronavirus currently. And so we get to hear from him this episode and we even have a special Patreon bonus episode with some additional questions and you can hear more about that at the end of the podcast. Before we jump into the interview, we want to mention Impact 360 once again. If you hadn't heard yet, they have an incredible gap year program that they have recently launched. This is a program for high schoolers who are graduating and about to go into college. And instead of heading straight into college, they have the opportunity to take a gap year with Impact 360. It's a nine-month course, and they can develop a great foundation, a biblical foundation, and a biblical worldview. They will understand truth, worldview, how to combat some of the arguments in today's culture against Christianity, and they'll have a firm foundation as they head into college So we encourage you to check that out. And if you use the promo code FREEMIND, you can actually get the application fee waived when you apply a high school student into one of those gap year programs. So use the promo code FREEMIND and you can get your application fee waived. And we also want to mention, as you might be at home the next few weeks, to check out those online courses from Impact360. They have the courses on truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection. They're incredible courses, and you get $25 off when you use the promo code FREEMIND as well. So check one of those out as you and your family are home in the near future. Check out one of those courses, use the promo code FREEMIND, and get $25 off. And now without further ado, here's the interview with Seth Nerva with a medical doctor dealing with coronavirus. All right, so here we are with uh, Dr. Dan Eichenberger. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Dr. Dan. We really appreciate it. Well, um, just for our listeners, um, just a a quick sketch. I know you've been uh, practicing in the medical field over 30 years. We actually first heard of you recently on the Frank Turek's uh, podcast, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which we highly recommend here at Free Mind for People. Um, and I know you guys are friends, uh, you've, you know, done apologetics stuff together in the past, but you've been a medical doctor, you've overseen hospitals and, and I believe you're even, um, volunteering your time this past week. I think you said you did over 50 hours and working with virus patients, even had a coronavirus patient. We'll come back and talk about that maybe a little bit later on, but can you just, uh, give us a quick sketch of your, of your background for our listeners here? So I finished a, uh, combined adult internal medicine and pediatric residency program and I'm board certified in both adult internal medicine and pediatrics and I was in a private practice for 27 years. Uh, During that time I've seen patients from all ages. Um, I took over uh, as a chief medical officer uh, at our hospital and then a few years later I became the chief executive officer of the hospital. Uh, we have a 240-bed community hospital that does everything from simple procedures to open-heart surgeries and brain surgeries. So we uh, have a service area of about seven surrounding counties, and uh, we uh, we see a lot of uh, patients of uh, all varieties and uh, all uh, types of illnesses. Oh, man. Well, it sounds like you might be just slightly more qualified than we are as worship leaders to speak into this topic and uh, music artists. But (laughs) so now we'll be glad to hear from you. Yeah. Okay. so let's just dive right in. So much information out there on social media concerning coronavirus. Um, Lots of fear, lots of panic. 
What are your thoughts on um, how people are perceiving this? Is this panic and fear, um, is it matching reality? Is it blown out of proportion? What are your thoughts on that? So as I said with Frank, those who control the media control the culture. And there is an underlying narrative uh, that is being portrayed by the mainstream media uh, that this virus is, uh, you know, somehow uh, significantly worse than anything we've ever seen in our past. And that's just not true. It is a novel virus. And what I mean by that is it is uh, its genetic makeup, if you want to say that. Its proteins that it has um, is different than what we've seen before. Uh, but it's not a new virus. Coronavirus has been around a long time. Uh, my sister is a veterinarian. Uh, they've had the coronavirus in animals for uh, years. Uh, but this particular coronavirus does have some characteristics that make it new, and we don't have um, antibodies built up uh, to fight it at this point because it is new. So in that regard, it is a little more serious. It has become a pandemic. We have seen it everywhere in the world. Um, but if you look at the statistics and what we are being told by the mainstream media, uh, they are giving us a view that's probably not quite accurate. And uh, certainly we talked initially uh, a week or so ago uh, when the mainstream media really took off. They wanted to make it sound like the death rate was just this horrible number and it was going to far exceed anything we've seen before. But uh, we talked last week with Frank that, uh, you know, when you're talking about the denominator, how many people are actually tested and how many are positive, uh, we see that the death rate actually has gone down significantly in the United States, uh, where it was last week uh, in the four and five range. Uh, the death rate this week is, uh, as of today, uh, it's 1.27 percent. Uh, and that's just that, that is higher than a normal flu virus. But it's not uh, it's not significantly uh, problematic that we can't handle in the United States. No, that's that's really helpful. And uh, and I do want to come back to those stats because I think that's so important and maybe dive down a little bit more into that. Um, but with the with the media stuff, you know, sometimes as a lay person, especially with regard to statistics in general, like it's not something people people study a lot and data gets thrown around in all directions. And I'm I'm reminded of um there's a New Testament scholar, Ben Witherington, who says a, a text without a context is a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. And I think that uh it seems to be that way to me with data as well. It can kind of be used to prop up whatever narrative someone wants if you don't know which questions to ask about, well, how relevant is this data? And then what's the context of it? And I, and I do think what you said uh, on the first episode with Frank was kind of what our what all of us were thinking was like, man, the media, it's, it's sensational by nature. Plus, you add on uh, Trump derangement syndrome on top of it. And so you got the, the perfect storm for them to take and, and conflate all this stuff. But I think what, what caught us by surprise was when the NBA started shutting down and um, all these other organizations and even the conservative um, outlets, you know, started saying, man, this is a, this is a major problem. So at that point, I think we were like, huh, maybe it's not just this media thing. But but something you said um, a couple weeks ago was interesting. You said this group thing, group think 
um, often happens, even with media. So does that explain some of what you saw with even conservative outlets buying into the hysteria? Was it was it was there pressure? Because that it tends to be the case, like I said, when you're looking at it as a layperson, that oh, if both sides are saying it, it must be true. We should panic. We should run for the hills. What do you? What is your take on that? I do believe that the herd mentality uh, is a key issue. And unfortunately, here in the United States, we also have a very litigious community and a society. So once one major outlet like a NBA or a Major League Baseball, or once one of those shut down, anyone who remained open after that was being setting themselves up for a, a litigation um, with the coronavirus. If something bad were to happen, you can bet lawyers would have been right there uh, ready to uh, file a lawsuit and try and uh, garner some cash uh, out of these huge organizations. So it becomes uh, the norm then for everybody to follow suit. So uh, I talked to our uh, congressman uh, just last week, and you know he asked me, what could we do in Congress that would help allay the situation? And my first thing was, you know, Put some legislation in to curtail any litigious activities related to coronavirus. That would allow businesses, small businesses, large businesses, to take a risk and open up a little sooner than they would normally if they knew they weren't going to be sued. That's going to be a key issue if we want our economy to get back in, uh, in motion here. And you mentioned also in the, a previous interview that uh, on that regard, like the, the reaction to um, the panic and the steps they're taking in the economy would probably be even worse than the actual virus. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we know from uh, the 2008 recession, what happened? There's lots of studies uh, regarding uh, the 2008 recession and the recovery and how that affected health. And uh, the British Journal of Psychiatry published a study that said they they could link 10,000 suicide deaths purely to the economic downturn from the recession in 2008. Uh, and that's just, that's just the psychological aspect. When you talk about uh, you know, individuals losing jobs, they're also going to lose their health insurance. We're going to see more homelessness. Uh, that comes with health risks as well. And when you account for all of those things, we're going to see a lot worse uh, issues related to the economic impact than we are from this health impact. And just going back to, um, you know, the 2009 H1N1, that also was a, that's an influenza virus, and it has a subgroup called the PDM09, uh, that's for year 2009. That also was a novel virus, a novel influenza virus that we hadn't seen before. And unfortunately, what we saw in the H1N1 epidemic and pandemic was that it affected young people, uh, infants and, and kids, more than it did the elderly like we're seeing now. But what we saw with that is there were, on average, 60 million H1N1 cases in the United States. Think about that. 60 million cases. And we had um, nearly, t- on average, uh, 12,500 deaths related to H1N1. We currently stand at uh, you know, 26,000 cases in the United States and 340 deaths compared to the 60 million and 12,000 deaths we saw for that year after the H1N1. So, you know, putting this in perspective, you know, what's the difference between, you know, 2020 and 2009? We have the same, we have the similar type of novel virus. Um, 
The, the differences seem to be that we're in an election year. Hmm. That's, one, that's one thing. We have a Republican president that no one seems to like. We've got other factors related to this that needs to be taken into account. And when you look at the mainstream media's bias on how they're presenting the data, uh, you've got to ask yourself some serious questions about what's really going on here. Yeah, I think that's that's insightful. And so just digging in a little bit, this this was something, again, as a layperson, I've never even known. I've never thought about the statistics of the flu before. I honestly didn't even know many people died from it every year. But as this stuff all started coming out, we saw stats from, you know, anywhere from 15,000 to to 40,000 a year just from the regular, you know, quote unquote flu. Um, so that was that was a bit surprising to me that die is that is that just in the U.S. and is can you maybe help us understand like I guess first of all when we say flu is that kind of talking about influenza is it specific is it just a catch-all phrase for viruses and is it typically every year we see about that many people die from that it is when they talk about the flu they are talking typically about the influenza virus now this is the time of year that we see all the respiratory viruses so. We see influenza virus, we see parainfluenza virus, respiratory syncytial virus, adenovirus, enteroviruses. There's a whole metanumavirus. Uh, there is a whole bunch of viruses that we see this time of year uh, that can cause severe illnesses and death, and we see that every year. Uh, but when they talk about the flu numbers, they're typically just referring to influenza. So in the United States, the CDC estimated that uh, in 2009, on the low side, there was 43 million influenza H1N1 virus uh, illnesses up to the high side of 89 million. And they averaged that out at 60 million is what they thought we had in the United States in 2009. Gotcha. Okay. And so, you know, that kind of gave a context. And, and what is the, what is the, like the death rate typically on the flu percentage wise? The death rates typically range anywhere from a low of about 0.05% up to about uh, 0.2 or 3%. Uh, and again, so this particular coronavirus, we are seeing higher numbers. No one argues the point that the death rate in this coronavirus is higher, uh, partly because it is affecting the older population with, with multiple comorbidities. In other words, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, uh, you know, immunosuppression. When we saw the H1N1 virus uh, in 2009, it affected mostly young people. So you don't see the same types of comorbidities that you see in this age group. And that's why the death rate is going to be higher with this particular virus. So does that explain, um, you've given so much good context here. Does that explain like what certain countries are affected in different ways concerning this virus? Like why was Italy hit so much harder or China or certain areas? And so when we read about these statistics or, you know, hear about the death rate in um, other countries, we're expecting the same here. But there's different reasons for that. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. So Italy uh, is one of the hardest hit countries in the world right now. And again, there's a number of factors uh, why that is. They have the second oldest population uh, under Japan. So their average age is, uh, you know, uh, much higher than most of the other European countries. Uh, they have a high incidence of smoking. Um, it, this virus does seem to affect and uh, their death rate in males is higher than females. 
And the sanitation issues in Italy is certainly different than the sanitation issues we have here. In addition to that, they have not invested uh, healthcare dollars the same way we have invested healthcare dollars. And the uh, ICU beds, on average, Italy has 12.5 ICU beds per 100,000 population. The United States, we're double that. We have 25 ICU beds per 100,000 population. And then our equipment is better. So uh, there's a number of factors that play into this, but certainly uh, the, the demographics as well as the healthcare facilities in these other countries are going to make their death rates higher because they just can't take care of the patients like we can. Just thinking through then the context. So you said the flu, you got a, I can't remember if you said uh, 0.5% death rate. Um, and then this uh, Corona, which I guess we're at, uh, what are we in uh, March 22nd, Sunday, when we're recording this, you're saying it's about one point. Um, what did you say? 1.75 is the latest numbers? No, 1.27 is our data today. Right. So where do you put that like in regard to like past things? So it's between the flu and what's on the kind of the higher end of that? Is it SARS and MERS or where does that fall in the stat? Sure. So SARS, which we saw back in 2002 and 2003, the death rate for that was 9.56%. Wow. Okay. And, and MERS... Uh, was 34% death rate. And when you're talking about Ebola, you're talking 40 to 50% death rate. We're talking about a 1.2% compared to SARS of 9.5 and MERS of 34. So th- this still is a very insignificant number compared to what we've seen in the past. Yeah, it's pretty cl- it seems like it's way closer to the flu than it is <laughs> to those if you're looking at a chart. Way closer, yes. Infectivity rate of this virus does seem to be uh, higher than uh, typical influenza, and that has to do with, uh, you know, we've not been exposed to it before, so we don't have immunity. But still, the infectivity rate is still not that great. Um, When we look at a normal flu viral season, the infectivity rate is about 8% among all the population. When we talked about the H1N1 back in 2002, uh, we looked at an infectivity rate of about 18%. Yeah, so we went from 8 to 18% when you have a novel virus. And then if you look at the coronavirus and you look at one of the best controlled studies, I guess, was uh, the cruise ship. Uh, and you look at the infectivity rate on the cruise ship, that, you know, that was a contained uh, group of individuals. And the infectivity rate so far is only 18.8%. So it's about the same as the H1N1 virus was. So it's not significantly uh, problematic, uh, and certainly with the measures we've taken, uh, that's going to be diminished quite a bit. So, uh, you know, I can't say that the flattening the curve is definitely a good thing for our hospitals in order to take care of these patients. But again, the economic impact of what this is going to do to the country and individuals long term, uh, we'll never know for sure. Mm, wow. And we're going to I want to come back to um, flattening the curve in a minute. Uh, yeah, thanks for sharing that about how it's how it's spreading because that's kind of the other factor. And I remember you saying that earlier on. So in a in a fraction of like 
trying to figure out the the death rate. You know, you have the denominator on the bottom. That's the amount of people that are infected. And the top would be the numerator, which would be how many people are dying. And as we're discovering more people infected, the death rate is going down, which, you know, you predicted early on. But with that, you know, we're see, we see the, I even saw this article today by a thoughtful person. And they were saying, you know, in one day, it, it took like three weeks, I think, to get to 8,000. And now in one day, it, it increased by 8,000. Um, how much of that is just due to the fact that we are now having more tests come out? And then how much of that is real? And for the part that is real, does that does that just kind of go along with the stats you just gave of the, I guess, the 18% or whatever you said of the, of the spreading rate? Is that because they seem to throw that out there and then to almost say, you know, take this seriously, we're panicking, this is panic mode. How do you, what do you make of those kinds of things? Or what, what should we make of them as lay people? That, that's, my, that's exactly my point when we talk about media bias and how they present the information. Because, yes, these numbers have doubled in a short period of time because we have tested so many more people. You know, if you only test a few people, you're not going to see a doubling number. But uh, they don't give you the information that when they're testing more people, we're actually seeing that death rate go down. You haven't heard them talk about death rate now for more than a week or so to any significant degree because, you know, the testing decreases that death rate. All they want to do now to, you know, promote fear is give you the, the increase in the total numbers. But that's a very limited view of what's really going on. But it's, again, it's the narrative they want to present. Let's talk a little bit about flattening the curve. Do you think the measures that we're taking to flatten the curve are, would you recommend those same measures? Is it a bit much? Or if we didn't take these steps, like shutting down all these industries, would the virus spread? Or what are your thoughts on that? And then, yeah, and maybe even before you say that, what is flattening the curve for people that might not know? So typically flattening, well, when we talk about flattening the curve, we are talking about the normal peak you see with a virus. Typically. Uh, once a virus starts, you will see a slow, gradual increase, and all of a sudden you'll get a huge peak where a lot of people get infected, and then it starts to slack back off. If you can take, and if you think about a hospital, if all of a sudden, you know, in a, in a, in a few-day period of time, you have this massive inflow of people with symptoms, it overwhelms, you know, the ability to manage those patients. So if you can bring that peak down and, and spread it over a little lengthier period of time, you're going to help the healthcare uh, facilities a lot. And, and so the, the measures we're taking of social distancing and all the cleanliness uh, we're touting, uh, those things definitely have helped. And they have definitely uh, brought down uh, the steepness of the curve. And it is going to help the hospitals that are in areas where they're having high numbers. Um, I talked on Frank's show. It's not the issue that these patients are so sick when they come to the hospital. The issue when they come to the hospital is we are in the middle of viral season. So we're going to see a lot of patients with very similar symptoms. And we can't tell when we first see them if they're a coronavirus, a respiratory syncytial virus, an influenza virus, a human metanuma virus, or one of the other many viruses. They all look the same. But once we're, the CDC has, has given the guidelines to hospitals that you have to manage these corona patients a certain way, and that means, you know, gowns, gloves, masks, eye shields, respirators, 
the amount of time and effort it takes to care for all of these patients is tremendous. And if you overwhelm the system with a lot of patients, it's gonna it's gonna be a problem for hospitals. Uh, and that's why flattening the curve is important. But again, we have to look at the long term economic consequences. Oh, wow. Is the cure worse than the disease? No, it is a good question. And, you know, I, I know y'all also talked about the fact that you were in the hospital last week and you you had an example of like four different patients that came up. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I worked, I worked uh, Monday through Thursday last week and I uh, put in more than 50 hours. And so I worked as a hospitalist when the uh, ER doctor uh, worked the patients up. Uh, and they get admitted to the floor. You know, I see them in the emergency room, and then I take care of them up on the floor. So uh, I had four different patients. Uh, they all had similar symptoms. They all had fever, cough, short of breath, and wheezing. When you first look at them, you have no clue what their underlying disease is going to be. Uh, we tested all four of them. One did have RSV. One had parainfluenza virus. One had metanumavirus, and one had coronavirus. But they all looked the same. One, my, the one patient with the uh, parainfluenza virus died. Uh, the corona patient uh, did get worse when she was in the hospital, and then she got better, and she's doing okay. Uh, the other two, typical viral illnesses, we treated them, and they're better and went home. You can't tell by looking, and you can't tell when they first come in, but now that corona is here and the CDC has given all these guidelines and mandates to hospitals how to manage these patients, it's overwhelming the system because of that, not because the illness is so severe. That's an interesting point. Okay, so when someone comes in with these symptoms and you discover it's a virus, how do you treat a virus? Or so if I caught the flu right now, should I be alarmed? Should I go to the hospital? Or how are viruses typically treated? Symptomatically. Okay. In other words, if you have a cough, Treat the cough with, you know, some sort of cough suppressant. Uh, if you're wheezing, you can do nebulized treatment or inhalers. Uh, if you have fevers, Tylenol for fevers. Typically just symptomatic treatment. Let it run its course. And, you know, more than, more than 85% are going to get better with nothing more than just symptomatic treatment, staying at home, rest fluids, and, and over-the-counter type medication. Uh, is, is that pretty much the same then for the coronavirus? Is there any other measures they might take with that? For a simple run-of-the-mill, 85% of coronavirus cases, that's going to be the same treatment. Okay. The, the 5 or 10% that get admitted to the hospital, and then the 5 or 10% of those who get really ill uh, and end up on a ventilator, Sure, there's lots of other things we do for those types of patients, but we do those for any viral patient, whether uh, uh, my other patient that had the uh, metanumavirus, same thing. Um, you know, she got treated with uh, a respirator and breathing treatments and certain other types of medicines like steroids. And, um, you know, we, we do the best we can, but there's no way to know who's going to progress. Uh, but it's not something that happens, you know, very quickly. I mean, it, these patients that get worse, they get worse over, you know, 24, 48, 36 hours. I mean, they just continually get worse, uh, whereas other people will turn around. So you, you have time to take care of these patients and manage them. And in the United States, we have the facilities to do that. And so with these viruses, how are they primarily passed? And how are you protecting yourself as you work with these patients? I mean, you've worked with them all week, and I'm sure you have a family, you go home. And yeah, advise us on how... Um, doctors have found that this particular virus is primarily passed. 
We still think it's primarily passed person to person uh, by, you know, basically large droplet type of uh, activity with uh, coughing and sneezing and, um, you know, getting on hands and, and sharing it between individuals. There are reports out there that the virus particles, you know, survive on surfaces for, you know, uh, certain periods of time. But we don't know specifically the viral particles that are on surfaces are a major source of the infection. We don't know that yet. That's just speculation from some people. Uh, we don't know if the uh, virus particles are in a quantity that is sufficient to be infected by uh, people after a certain period of time. So we still think the majority of transmission is person to person from coughing, sneezing and, you know, direct contact. And um, with, you know, I know I've heard they're trying to, to develop a vaccine. What does that, what's the purpose of that? And what, like, is that a preventative measure? And how does that work with the coronavirus? Sure. It's just like the influenza vaccines uh, that we promote every year. The more, the more people you can get with even partial uh, immunity, you know, an antibody response to uh, the virus it will diminish the severity and the duration of, of the illness and sometimes prevent it completely. So when we talk about herd immunity, we're talking about getting enough people immunized against diseases that the, you know, the, basically the bacteria or the virus can't find a host that hasn't uh, been immunized. And therefore, you decrease the incidence of how many cases you'll see. So um, there's different ways to... Uh, Develop immunity. You can develop immunity uh, by yourself. If you get the disease and get better, uh, you, your body will make antibodies that the next time uh, that virus is around, you'll have a better response. Uh, the, the vaccines give you kind of a passive immunity. And then, uh, you know, patients that are really sick, uh, you've heard about the immune globulin. Uh, so patients from plasma that donate plasma, they can spin that down and get the antibodies out of that and then give that to severely ill patients uh, and give them some, you know, antibodies artificially, basically, that may or may not help. We still don't know if that's going to work well in coronavirus, but it is being looked at. You know, if you uh, I think last month that uh, we were traveling and I was in D.C. and for the first time in a long time, I caught the flu. I went to the Minute Clinic and she tested me and said, yeah, you've got the flu. And it was so bad. But that was my first time ever thinking of getting, okay, here or not, I'm getting flu shots. I don't care what it is. So you, I'm, I'm hearing you say these shots and the vaccines would work. Like, so the flu, the normal flu shot that's offered, would that kind of help against, I guess that's what you're saying, help against catching coronavirus? The influenza, the influenza shot, uh, flu shot will not help against coronavirus, okay. but it will help against influenza. Ah. Uh, if we develop a corona vaccine, uh, then that would certainly be a benefit the next time coronavirus comes around. And it will come around again next year. Tell you what, I'll be in line for that, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, okay, go ahead. Well, what do you expect uh, just in the upcoming you know, next few weeks, uh, maybe the next couple months? I know I've, I've heard it floating around like we're going to be dealing with this maybe till June or July. Do you have any, I know it's speculation at this point, but what are your thoughts on that? The economy can't survive till June or July. <laughs> wow. We are going to have to be willing to take some risks and let companies and businesses open back up at some point. Uh, typically, if you look at the China curve and the South Korea curve, they had a typical viral peak and then it has started to subside. So within a couple of weeks, we will see the same thing. We will see a peak of the coronavirus uh, cases. 
and then we'll start seeing it start to settle down. And as we get into the hotter months and the more humid months and the more sunnier months, uh, we're going to see the coronavirus go away. So I, I cannot foresee our economy surviving till June uh, mm. doing what we're doing now. Wow. So, yeah, you know, we just moved from uh, central Florida to to California. And so, you know, one might be tempted to say a bit of a, a governor uh, downgrade, but um, I know <laughs> uh, Governor Governor Newsom here is, you know, talking about maybe in the millions and you know something upwards of what is it, sixty something percent. Do you so you think you're you're skeptical of those types of claims and numbers? That is not based on any realistic data. I have no clue where he's coming up with that number. He said twenty five million. You've got about forty million. Uh, people in California, that would be a 62.5% infection rate. We don't see that type of infection rate ever with this type of virus. So, uh, and, and with the amount of social distancing and closures we're doing, there is absolutely no way you're going to have a 62% a, a infection rate in California. There's just no way. And I'm not sure how he can get away with saying that and why the media doesn't challenge him on that. Oh, yeah. That's not surprising, but yeah, you're right. Um, and then, you know, just thinking about kind of, so, so you know, you got people sitting at home right now and they're just feeding in on these these headlines, this craziness. But really what I, what I hear you saying is that we should be maybe just a little bit more worried about this than the normal flu and just taking general precautions, but also, you know, obviously submitting as Christians to the governing authority. So we're not telling people to run against, run out and do against that. And, you know, the only two exceptions, like Frank said, this was if they tell us to sin or tell us to stop doing something God told us to do, like preaching the gospel, but this doesn't fall in those categories. So we are to submit to the governing authorities. But as far as our personal, like panic and fear, you're saying really statistically that we should approach this and think of it more closer to the flu than, than, than like the bubonic, plague or something like that. Yes, I want to be very clear that this is more serious than the normal influenza that goes around every year. It is, but it is not anywhere near the degree of other things we've seen like SARS, like MERS, like Ebola, like it is very similar to the H1N1 virus we saw in 2009. It is very similar to that. Infectivity rate right now looks to be about the same as what it was with H1N1. The death rate is higher than it was with H1N1. Um, but again, we don't know exactly where that death rate is going to level out once we get all the testing done. So uh, right now, the United States death rate is 1.27. That's low, certainly lower than the worldwide average. But that's because we have such an excellent healthcare system. And you have confidence of um, how the United States is handling this, the medical industry um, compared and not to be um, arrogant, just compared to other nations, you think that we are doing a good job flattening the curve, so to speak, and that our medical industry is doing all that it can to make sure it doesn't spread as much as it can. We are the leader in the world on this particular virus because of our free market society and our non-socialized healthcare system. So yes, we, we are doing everything as well as we can uh, you know, we have learned some lessons from this virus uh, that hopefully the governing authorities are going to, um, you know, uh, heed and uh, do a things a little differently going forward. But uh, for the most part, no, we 
it is because of our healthcare system and because of our free market society that we're able to combat this the way we have. Can you maybe explain that a little bit more? What's the connection between a free market society and being able to handle something like this? The speed at which uh, businesses can uh, do research, garner you know the evidence-based uh, data they need to make decisions and develop uh, a vaccine, develop the uh, trials to do uh, drug testing. Uh, you don't see that in socialized medicine systems because the government is the one controlling that. So uh, in the free market, you have competitors uh, looking to make a profit, which is a good thing. That's, that's absolutely why we can get things done as quickly, because we have competition amongst a number of different companies and individuals uh, where you don't have that in other countries. So the free market is what's going to save us here. And I've also heard that it kind of connects in with the, the development of new drugs. Is, do you find that to be the case? And maybe, maybe talk about that a little bit, too. Sure. Research and development um, here in the United States, you know, key to developing new uh, drugs, new vaccines, new protocols for treatment. Uh, and other countries, you know, use what we have done here and basically piggyback off our research and development uh, for their own countries because they haven't invested in it. So we are always, um, you know, a leader in the R and D part of healthcare. No, that's good. That's good to know. And, and like Italy, for instance, is is this playing into their problems at all? Do they have more of a socialized medical system, or is that just not a not really a factor? No, it's it's definitely a factor. In fact, you know, ten years ago, uh, there were studies done with Italy touting that Italy was, you know, decreasing their cost curve in healthcare, basically because they were cutting costs in a lot of areas, including ICU care. So, you know, what's happened to them over the years is when you have an issue like this, they're not capable of ramping up and taking care of the patients they had because they did cut costs. So in a socialized medicine system, you know, the government allocates money to healthcare every year. And if you continue to lower your cost curve, the next year, the government's going to give you less. Mm -hmm. And over time, that's going to catch up with you when you have an issue like this. So that's why Italy's in the situation they're in. That's good. Well, folks, you you, you heard it uh, straight from here. So someone who knows what they're talking about, uh, you can, you know... Take, take in a little piece. This is uh, really helpful and because it's, it's knowledge, it's information, it's vital information that can help us think through this more clearly. Um, maybe, maybe before we, I, I got a few questions I want you to answer just for our Patreons off the record. It's off the public record so we can go <laughs> talk a little more table talk. But um, before we jump into that, so just general principles as a, as a person of kind of your background, how do you recommend as people who are on Facebook that we don't have a medical background, we don't have a um, background in stats, what should we do with, when we see stuff like this come across our de desk feed um, that's, that's getting us to panic based on this data? Is there a place we can go to, to kind of get clarity on stuff like this in general, or do you have any general recommendations? Well, I'd like to say there is a place you could, they could go for sanity, but I haven't found it. <laughs> <laughs> The problem is there is an underlying narrative that the media is is pushing, and I'm I'm not sure what the underlying agenda is at this point. You know, if if what you're hearing is really causing fear, you know, step back, take a second look, and you know, before you jump to conclusions or buy into what they're telling you, uh, you know, 
try and get a second opinion from a from a different source because you know the sources on the mainstream media definitely have a bias that they won't tell you up front. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that's wise. And I don't know if you if you followed this at all. It's th- there's an article that's been floating around on Twitter the last couple of days by a guy named Aaron Jin or Gin. I, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but he was a um, Silicon Valley data guy. And he was put up a really thorough article and, and just took maybe a less of a hysterical position on it. And they, they removed his article and all this kind of stuff. I don't know if you came across that by any chance. Oh, I've read it top to bottom. Okay. <laughs> what did you? Th- what was your general take on it? He is he is spot on. Okay. On virtually everything he is saying, and he gives a now again he he also has there is some bias in in his viewpoint, but again it contradicts so much of what the media is telling you, and it gives some context as we talk about in you know reading our Bibles, using the context to really try to understand. The media doesn't give you the context. He is at least trying to give you the context of where these graphs and where these numbers are coming from and what they actually mean. So that's an excellent article. Okay, good, good. It's funny. I don't know if you clicked on it today, but you click on it and a warning comes up, says this link may be unsafe, and then you continue to it. He had to put it up on a whole different news site because they took it down. It's really interesting. So uh, we just want to ask you maybe a couple questions here Uh one of them, we want to find out about the origin of the virus. You know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories floating around. Uh, we want to ask, you know, was, was this coronavirus, in fact, created in some lab in Wuhan by nefarious Chinese scientists? Uh, or is it just kind of, did it just, you know, happen to pop up by there? You know, who knows? But the other question we want to ask you is what your thoughts are on you know, how Trump, the Trump administration has handled this thing and maybe what you think about him calling it the Chinese virus. So, but we're going to actually do this on our Patreon account. So if you guys are interested in hearing the answers to these questions, going to have to go ahead and flip over there. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Seth Nerva. And if you want to hear that bonus Patreon episode with those questions that Seth asked right there at the end, you can go to patreon.com slash freemindfm and you'll find that link in the show notes. And a donation of any amount per month will give you access to this bonus episode and all the previous bonus episodes that we've ever released in Freemind. So we encourage you go to patreon.com slash freemindfm check out that bonus content and we'd love to hear from you and interact with you you can comment on our instagram or twitter at freemindfm comment on a facebook post as it goes up freemindpodcast.fm is our url there and you can always email us podcast at freemind.fm we're so glad you joined us this week we're praying for you we want to encourage you and we can't wait to connect with you again see you next time you are here